Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Welcome back to New Books in History. This is your host, Bob Wintermute. In this episode of the New Books in Military History podcast, I'm coming to you from Bloomsfield College with our guest, Harry Frankie Rivera. I first must offer a disclosure. Harry and I go way back. Uh, We first met in 1998 in one of Russell Wigley's seminars on American military history at Temple University. Since then, Harry went on to finish a master's degree at Temple, then his doctorate in history at the University of Massachusetts in Amherst. More recently, Harry has become probably the leading scholar on the military history and culture of Puerto Rico. Indeed, his recent book, Soldiers of the Nation, Military Service and Modern Puerto Rico, 1868-1952, is the subject of our talk today. A vocal advocate for Puerto Rican social and political concerns, Harry is also a 10-year veteran of the United States Army and National Guard. Harry, it's, it's great to chat with you here on New Books in Military History. Thanks for having me. My pleasure. Yeah. Hey, I've known you for a long time, and I, I've been following your career with no small interest. Can you share with our listeners what motivated you to pursue this project? If I'm not mistaken, you've been interested in the military history of Puerto Rico for a very long time, correct? Yes, that, that is correct. Uh, uh, to a certain point, um, this all started when I was getting ready to move to Philadelphia to start my master's degree in military history at Temple. And a few days before I left Puerto Rico, uh, my future mother-in-law, she gave me a news article uh, an in-depth article about this uh, woman, Noemi Figueroa Sulet, who had started to investigate uh, the experience of the 65th Infantry in Korea and was interested in eventually making a documentary. So that caught my attention, but um, the way history had always been for me is that uh, nothing had ever happened in Puerto Rico. The Puerto Rican had no history, so I had always done European and United States history and and that's what I wanted to do at Temple, and little by little, that that what I read in that newspaper kept, um, I don't know, waking me up at night. And I said, I need to, I need to um, research uh, uh, these uh, these people who went to Korea in nineteen fifty. I didn't even know I had transited on avenues, name on their honor, never paying attention. I had seen the monuments all to Puerto Rico, like hidden in in plain in plain sight. But no one, they had been forgotten. So I decided to <clears throat> back a temple to research them and write my master thesis on them. And something interesting happened is that I thought I was going to write um, a traditional military history of how many they were, <clears throat> uh, where they were, uh, where, where they sent, where did they fight, uh, accolades, coming back, wrap up the war. But then I started to interview the veterans, and they started telling me these stories in which they were fighting both for the United States 
and Puerto Rico, and of course the economic uh, part of it. We were so poor in World War II. We had uh, we joined. We were Jews for the first time, but in Korea it was different. I mean, they're fine. They're dying. They keep volunteering, and you start seeing these pictures of them raising Puerto Rican flags and reading parts of the new constitution. And then I realized that this was this war was uh, in many ways the first global and total war for Puerto Ricans. And in many ways, it was a war of emancipation and decolonization. And, and I thought, okay, I'm going to finish, had to graduate. So this is going to be about the military ma uh, matters. But when I go into a PhD program, I had to go all the way back to study how military history, ha military history or military participation of the people of Puerto Rico in, in different armed forces under Spain and on the United States had shaped socioeconomic and cultural and political projects in Puerto Rico. And that's where the books, uh, that's from where the book comes from. That's great. Wow. You know, there appear to be, for me, two overarching themes to the book. First, the story of military service has been central to the Puerto Rican pursuit of identity, you know, inside their own quest for legitimacy and acceptance as members, you know, and indeed citizens, I guess, uh, denied full participation within the American experience. And second, that the path towards modernization for Puerto Rico is tied irrevocably to the American military. Do you want to comment on that? Those are exactly two, <clears throat> pardon me, two of the main points that I tried to explore and get across in the book. The first one, uh, yes, military service has been instrumental in shaping modern Puerto Rican's identities. And that is why I pluralized my book between 1868 and 1952, because I think that the events that take place in 1868 when Puerto Ricans state the biggest revolt against uh, Spanish uh, sovereignty uh, in Puerto Rico in 1952 when the current status are created, they show these uh, nine plus decades. It shows a center in which military service is at the forefront of who are the Puerto Ricans and who are they going to be. For example, 1868, it is the Puerto Rican militias who put down the insurrection doing Spain a huge favor, but Spain is so, uh, it worries that this Puerto Rican militiamen may uh, become the nucleus of a rebel army, and they decide to demo demobilize the Puerto Ricans at that point. And in Puerto Rican historiography, they say um, uh, the accepted narrative, or most common narrative, is that uh, the local elite, little by, known as Criollo, little by little, uh, were excluded from the colonial bureaucracy, and that created a big schism with the new uh, Spanish newcomers and kind of uh, fueled the idea of independence or that we're different, mm -hmm. right? I argue that they were not that excluded, right? But that the big exclusion, the big, the, the, the big sign saying, you're not like us and you will never be, it's when the uh, able male population... Uh, to serve in the military is excluded and is told no. We're talking about the, the the creolized elites or the peasant. I hate to use the word the, criollo, the criollo elites. Yeah, 
the Criollolis within Puerto Rico and Spanish Caribbean, Criollo is a claim to whiteness mm -hmm. uh, in many ways. So the Criollolis, they were not excluded. They needed Spain mm -hmm. as their support. But what created that sense of we're Puerto Ricans and they're Spaniards is that the Puerto Rican, those born in Puerto Rico, could no longer serve in the militia, mm -hmm. which is in, a, in many ways emasculates the population of, in Puerto Rico. Mm -hmm. And so that's part of it, right? What happens? And then, like I explained in the book, the United States comes with a total different mentality. No, we're going to use the military to create a new Puerto Rican. And eventually that, uh, eventually starting World War One, that process of creating a new Puerto Rican, new Puerto Rican identities, a new Puerto Rican man fall into the hands of the Criollos, mm -hmm. right? Especially after the National Guard is formed. And by World War II, the, that process, creating a new Puerto Rican via military service, start to become popularized mm -hmm. or to fall in the hands uh, of the public. And by the second by the Korean War, what we have is that the politicians creating a state that can accommodate complex modern Puerto Rican identities are responding mm -hmm. to the needs of those soldiers. So, mm -hmm. so it is that whole century, and I'm trying to, uh, you know, that we historians we create centuries that don't have to be chronologically. I want this to be a century in Puerto Rico, the century of Puerto Rican identities and how they are contested, or the century. Uh, over the fight over modern Puerto Rico. You know, it's, it's interesting that we're putting this in the context of a struggle for identity within the identity itself. I, I can't help but think that what you're doing, you know, you're, you're placing military service as being central to national identity. You know, anybody who's read Eugene Weber's books, Peasants and the Frenchman and other works, you know, won't, won't disagree with that. But it also seems to run contrary to what passes, has passed for the last 40 years as acceptable scholarship of Puerto Rican identity, which has seemed to be, I'm not going to go so far as to call it anti-military, but very military skeptic. Um, that's another big part of the book um, that I, uh, I took the time to debunk accepted scholarship um, on Puerto Rico and the role of the military, starting with the myth of, the myth of Puerto Ricans uh, being granted U.S. citizenship so they could go into World War One, which is basically, uh, uh, I don't even know how it became part of uh, the accepted uh, scholar narrative. I, to, be, to be honest, it was part of my... When I grew up, it, it was like it was embedded in my DNA. Mm -hmm. That was one of my truths. Right. And the first time you start to research, even uh, the, the most superficial research starts showing you, oh, no, first of all, you don't, you don't need to be a citizen to have to raise it for the draft. This has been uh, a process in the making way before, uh, since at least in 1902, the process has started. And... Then when you see that the draft, the Puerto Ricans were excluded from the draft and they felt insulted and demanded that they would be included. And that was just one of them. There were so many myths. And what I came to realize is that perhaps maybe of the anti-military history backlash after Vietnam, that military topics became taboo. No one really researched them. And, and it was also about the, 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 the question of Puerto Rican independence was never really questioned at that time either, in the mm -hmm. 1970s, yeah. that scholarship. 
No, um, uh, definitely. I mean, independence, they were uh, group pro-independence, but they were small and, and weak. And actually, that period, World War One, even the most staunchly pro-independence Puerto Ricans, they supported the war effort, participated mm -hmm. in the war, because the war has been sold as a war to end all wars. Mm -hmm. And how could they stay out of it, right? Mm -hmm. So there's no, basically there's, no opposition to the war in Puerto Rico, not even from the most staunchly pro-independence leader who say, yeah, we have to participate in this war and we're going to have to wear a U.S. Army uniform, but that's fine. That's fine. Mm. Um, so, yeah, uh, definitely counters, um, uh, uh, it counters many narratives that have become accepted truism in Puerto Rican historiography, but that unfortunately they didn't have a leg to stand on. Mm. You know, we, we've spoken about the role of the Criolas in the, the 1868 rebellion. And of course, they're going to be a feature going forward. That's a very small sector of the population, obviously. A much larger, you know, peasant population, the Jibaro, the Jibaro, mm -hmm. I hope I'm pronouncing it the right. Hibaro, yeah. The Hibaro. Um, <clears throat> They're, they're a different community entirely. How do they identify themselves as being part of this project? Well, um, the Criollos are interesting because a way of them to claim legitimacy uh, as the people who could, should be the rulers of Puerto Rico, mm -hmm. as opposed to Spaniards, newcomer. Mm -hmm. And there's very little difference between the Criollos and and the new uh, commerce from Spain is to look at the Hibaro, uh, the same way that some paternalistic army officer are going to look at Native American mm -hmm. and say, well, I can kill the Hibaro and create a new man out of it. And if I cannot do it by putting them to processes mm -hmm. or institutions, at least I can write and create an idea of a Hibaro, mm -hmm. of a Hibaro, or a Puerto Rican person that looks more like I do. And that begins the uh, the whitening of the Puerto Rican peasant. Mm -hmm. So it looks, at least in cultural literary production, more like the Criollo elites, who are also oppressors in Puerto Rico. Yeah, wait a minute. I mean, I, I'm, mm -hmm. I've, I'm kind of a I've, I've studied colonial systems in the United States. And of course, I, I look at these questions of racial intermingling and transformation in the American perspective at the same time, the last thing you wanted to do as a good, you know, white American was to countenance the, the whitening of, you know, different uh, groups. It'd be the American Indians, African-Americans, Mexican-Americans. They were distinct and separate. Yeah. They were going to change us. But here in Puerto Rico, you're saying it was the exact opposite. We were going to change them through this same, this same kind of process. Yes, and, and um, Puerto Rico is interesting because you have you have parallels, um, uh, parallel process to those occurring in the United States, yeah. but those occurring in the Caribbean, Central America, and South America, and there are several processes of the whitening, right? Yeah, yeah, yeah. In which uh, most of the Puerto Rican peasantry is of very mixed ancestry. Sure. But sure. the way it's going to be presented at the end 
It is like a, basically a family that just came from Switzerland. They look that way. <laughs> but when you when you uh, send uh, put your troops on the ground, you look at the people saying no. They don't look like a, a, a peasant family from a farmer from Switzerland. No, they don't look like that, right? So a way for why do they do this? Because it's a way of gaining respectability. Uh, the Spanish Caribbean live under the spectrum of. Uh, there's going to be racial war if you become independent. You're going to become Haiti, and right. in the and in the Spanish, Haiti's always in the back. Yeah, yeah. And and in all the different Caribbeans, um, people try to escape what is perceived as blackness and whiten themselves mm-hmm. and the populations that they wish to command. So mm-hmm. that's why the whitening of the of the peasantry starts with the elites writing about basically this white peasant families who are rustic and humble, but they're also pure, and they're kind of like us, they look like us, and we should command them and turn them into something better if we can. Wow. We talked briefly about the Lagos Rebellion of 1868, and of course you described how you know the, the militia was banned, or disbanded, rather, after the rebellion. They were too successful. Does that... There, there's a clear implication of what that's going to mean in 1898. The absence of a militia means there's going to be no military response of note to American invasion. Does that necessarily translate then into the rise of a pro-American sentiment within the Creoles? Well, this is interesting because if in 68 they demobilized the Puerto Rican militia that had kept Puerto Rico Spanish for uh, three hundred plus years. Mm-hmm. Um, uh, almost immediately, what they do, they have this corp of volunteers, which is reserved for newcomers from Spain and mm-hmm. their children. It's, uh, it basically, uh, it becomes uh, um, another mean of coercion, and is reserved uh, for the most pro-Spanish. Uh, elements in Puerto Rico, mm. right? And eventually, and because of the war going on in Cuba in 95-98, Puerto Ricans come to serve again in the Spanish military, but again, they're looking, uh, the way they put it, they basically force Puerto Ricans to show their card, like how much pro uh, Spain you have been, like you have to prove, it's like, like a proof of blood, but a, a historical proof of how much pro Spain your family has been to make sure that if we accept you, accept you into our military, you're going to fight even harder than Spain themselves for us to win because if we lose, you're the one who loses it the more, right? Mm-hmm. Uh, the most. Um, <clears throat> so when the United States is about to invade Puerto Rico, when the Spanish War, uh, Spanish, uh, the public or Spanish-American war start and uh, majors in Puerto Rico start to receive letters of groups of Puerto Rican who want to volunteer to create a, a militia to assist the Spaniards, but the Spanish authorities say, no, thank you, this is the last thing we want. We cannot trust these people, mm-hmm. right? They're using uh, the Corps of Volunteer, which is this uh, elite part of uh, the Peninsulares and their children uh, to assist the regular Spanish garrison. And what happened is that as soon or even uh, days before the United States invaded, uh, Puerto Ricans banned called a seditious parties, they start to form. They mm-hmm. start stealing horses. Then they become uh, 
kind of like a ad hoc infantry uh, cavalry on their own, and they start to harass the corp of volunteer and the Spanish forces behind their own la- own lines, right? Yeah. Within the line, because they're all over, which forces the corp of volunteer that they have been put in a advanced position to support the Spanish military to say, I have to go. They're burning my hacienda, mm. right? So when the Americans invaded the Puerto Ricans, have already started these parties to harass the Spanish forces and their paramilitary or reserve force, the uh, the, um, uh, the Corps of Volunteers. Mm-hmm. So that is already happening. So this made that there was no war in Puerto Rico. Yeah. No, as soon as the war started, um, and brief, uh, uh, shortly before the United States invaded, uh, the Spanish forces were being harassed by Puerto Rico. And, and, and when the Americans inva- uh, invaded, then it was even worse for the Spaniards, and that helped the Americans advance so quickly. Step back just a, little, a, a short bit. You know, you're, we're talking about the American invasion now, and you place the island within the larger strategy that the United States had for securing the Caribbean. Uh, you know, it's a standard narrative. You know, that, that shows Puerto Rico is like being secondary consideration. You know, we're, everything's all into Cuba. Uh, despite Nelson Miles, the commanding general of the army, saying, no, we should go to Puerto Rico first because of the sickly season in Cuba. He's overridden by the War Department. They land the daiquiri, what, whatnot. Which leads some to argue, and it's a long buildup, leads some to argue that the invasion of Puerto Rico was unnecessary. How do you come down on that? Well, um, Puerto Rico may have been a secondary target in the way the war was to be conducted. Mm-hmm. That That is uh, fine, and I completely agree with you. And uh, it wasn't necessary to invade Puerto Rico to end the war. The, 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 Sp- the Spaniards have been trying to in the war, in the war, um, diplomatically, mm-hmm. since before the Americans uh, uh, landed at Daiquiri. They've been mm-hmm. trying to find a peaceful solution, but in all their diplomatic correspondence, they say, we want to keep Puerto Rico. And the United States keeps saying, no. Mm. And that is why uh, a week, uh, about a week after Cuba, uh, the Cuban garrison surrenders, mm-hmm. um, and the Spaniards have continued to say, let's end this war. We're ready to end this war. You don't have to come here. Uh, can we keep Puerto Rico? The United States keeps saying no. The other Rubel writes to Henry Cabot Lodge, the famous telegram, don't make peace until we take Puerto Rico. Mm-hmm. And Puerto Rico is invaded, so there's boots on the ground, and Puerto Rico can be claimed. So it is necessary, then. It's yeah. not that it's unnecessary. It, it, the campaign yeah. does have a purpose. Yeah, it's necessary. It's, uh, I mean, they could have ended the war without... Uh, Without it, but right. the idea is if we had troops on the ground, mm-hmm. then they have to give up Puerto Rico. Mm-hmm. And Puerto Rico is seated in lieu of indemnities, mm-hmm. <laughs> right? Um, so it's not necessary to end the war, but it's necessary to attain the goals of the war, which is to secure uh, Puerto Rico for the, <clears throat> uh, to protect um access to Central America and the projected Inter-Asianic Canal. Mm-hmm. And Mahan is writing about this. Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. We're going to come to Mahan in a moment. Yeah. I mean, the campaign itself, <laughs> gratefully, is very brief, almost bloodless. There are a few casualties. Very few. Uh, but, but almost bloodless. You've described, of course, how the, the, the Criollo uh, volunteers responded 
to the war. They, they become you know, almost auxiliaries fighting with the Americans. What about the rest of the island? How do they take to this trans, this sudden transfer? Well, well, I want to say this. It's not, it's not the Criollos, which are part of the lead. They, until the end, they were um, swearing the loyalty to Spain. But as soon as the American landed, they started yeah. to defect. Right. It is the Puerto Rican peasantry and, and the common Puerto Rican who are... Before even before the Americans landed, who are already taking things into their own hands, okay, right? Okay, yeah. So, um, how do people react? Well, Spain had not been a good administrator or even administrator to Puerto Rico. So, as soon yeah. as the Americans landed, they started to be joined by some of these parties, right? Mm-hmm. Uh, by local people, uh, by uh, sometimes they will be received and they will be. Uh, certain occasion which uh, the residents of a town were already raising the, the American flag in one of these cases uh, backwards because they didn't know how they never seen one before they just sure got a hold of one and um, but it was the resentment against Spain uh, the fact that the the American campaign was fought in what I call a, 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 a harsh and a hearts and mind campaign that mm-hmm. Miles decide no I'm not gonna advance um, I'm not gonna advance with the support of of the of the naval guns because that is going to create unnecessary destruction mm-hmm. I just gonna uh, take a different approach and let the people come to me so he's mm-hmm. not interested in alienating the Puerto Rico but getting the Puerto Ricans to side with him and that's what happened and mm-hmm. that I mean they had started fighting on their own and the Americans came with Puerto Rican scouts and and Puerto Rican influentials who have been living in exile in the United States. Yeah, I was going to say, just as there was a Cuban exile community, mm-hmm. there was a Puerto Rican community as well. Yeah, and they arrived with the American invasion, and they knew where to go. And um, the Puerto Rican campaign was, as you say, pretty bloodless. Mm-hmm. Uh, in great part because Puerto Rico, and this I find out talking to uh, a friend who is working on... Puerto Rico as a testing ground for Spanish military new technologies, mm. right? I mean, it's using a, it has been used as an infirmary, as a staging area, yeah. the war of reconquest, the war for Cuba. And his theory is that uh, the Spanish troops in Puerto Rico had some of the best, uh, most modern equipment the Spanish military had because they were trying everything in Puerto Rico before oh, wow. deploying in Cuba. And they had a plan of going back, going back to a defensive line until they would actually... Uh, mount a strong resistance, but that huge fight in which this, in the way of seeing it, the Spaniards were doing kind of like an elastic defense, mm-hmm. letting the Americans advance and then let go of the rover band. But the rover band was never snapped because the surrender came before the big battles. You mentioned Captain Alfred Thayer Mahan earlier, and you give a lot of credit to him for the inevitable annexation of Puerto Rico as a dependency of the United States. What was Mahan's outlook towards the people of the island? I don't I don't think that he was um <clears throat> I don't think he was I don't think he ever saw who the people of the island were, just yeah. like um many people who supported the war in Cuba because of what the yellow press presented, mm-hmm. a dancer in distress, a white dancer in distress abused by a dark mm-hmm. Spaniard. Mm-hmm. And when they go to Cuba, I say, wow, these people are darker than the darker Spaniards abusing them. I don't know what we're going to do with them, right? Right. So, 
Mahan actually talks about the Philippines, Puerto Rico, and Cuba uh, in a book called uh, Lesson of the War with Spain. Mm-hmm. Um, his message, and I'm um, uh, well, summarizing here, his thoughts are like, basically, we need these places. Mm-hmm. These people are kind of the unholy mix of Indian, Black, and Spaniard, and on top of that, they have Catholicism. They're... Uh, there are two compromise racial uh, race wise mm-hmm. and culture wise, but we should follow the paternal approach of the British and try to make something out of them. So mm-hmm. we're gonna rule their lands and we're gonna make them better. That's what right. we're gonna give them. So it's my hand without saying it explicitly. He's talking about civilization and imperialism. Oh sure, yeah. We need these people. They should not become part of us because. It's going to be horrible for us, Mm -hmm. but we should try to civilize them, and we need those places. And that's that competing vision Mm -hmm. of whiteness again that I I mentioned earlier, Mm -hmm. the American view of whiteness Mm -hmm. versus the the, the Spanish or Puerto Rican view. How how do his views towards Puerto Rico then fit into the larger Mahanian strategy? Uh, Into the... How does a view for Puerto Rico fit into the, his larger view? Yeah. Well, I think that something interesting about Maham is that uh, in his uh, uh, late-stage production, he started to include race as a factor for military strategy. Mm. Like, um, So I know I just mentioned this already, but we need the place. We don't like the people. But we should rule them in the most benevolent of ways, just like the British do, and um, try to civilize and kind of repay them for using their base, right? And then <clears throat> I found other writing from Mahan about the canal and promoting the canal, what the canal is going to do. And he talks and he said, it's not only going to allow us to have a military presence and concentrate our naval forces in the ocean that we need them rapidly, right? This is something that comes from 1898 as mm-hmm. they send reinforcement from the Pacific squadron to the Caribbean and it takes almost two months to reach the flight, right? Mm-hmm. That's unacceptable. So I say it's not only good for the Navy and for protecting the sea, uh, <clears throat> uh, the, the trade routes, but it's going to allow us to populate the West Coast with desirable people as opposed to the undesirable now uh, setting in that area mm-hmm. it's gonna keep <clears throat> the united states it's going to protect the fabric that makes the american and he's not mm-hmm. writing about that in his, uh, in his in his later writing it's all about how do we keep them out and to right. him the panama canal portray military purposes yeah and on top of that your cherry on top is it's going to allow us to bring the rice european stock and mm-hmm. populate the western coast right Interesting. You know, I've written to some small extent myself on the nature of American imperial administration in the Caribbean, you know, particularly through the lens of, of tropical health or tropicality and public health. You know, and reading your book, I keep thinking back to the influence of medical officers like Bailey, Bailey K. Ashford, William Crawford Gorgas in framing Puerto Rico and its inhabitants. You know, I recall that Gorgas went on about the hazards of tropical islands like Puerto Rico to American whiteness. And he went so far as to proclaim that the island was, in his word, I remember this quote vividly, 
not being fit for white men until the scourge of insect vector disease was was dealt with. And Ashford, of course, you know, we know, went on to become the, mm-hmm. the heroic figure who treated hookworm infection in Puerto Rico. These guys viewed Puerto Rico as a, a laboratory yeah. for, for their work. How did Puerto Ricans view their work and these men themselves? Were they accepted? Well, I think... Or... Mahat, I mean, sorry, um, Bailey, is one of these figures that he was native. He married into the Puerto Rican medical class. He married a Puerto Rican woman. Mm-hmm. Uh, he came to love the place. I know you read his autobiography. Yeah. And, of course, he's using the language of the time. But he fell in love with the island. So I think he was more than... Sorry? No, I was going to say, that's so interesting because he goes on, when he's serving mm-hmm. in China in the 20s, he becomes like the expert on going native. And, you know, how do we prevent American soldiers in the Philippines and in China mm-hmm. from, from going Asiatic? Yeah. And, you know, they're medicalizing this fear of losing whiteness. Yeah. And yet he becomes a part of that himself. I love this. I mean, that's just... No, he completely becomes part, uh, part of it. And, um, um, uh, the first school of, for the sort of tropical diseases is named on his honor in Puerto Rico. Mm-hmm. I mean, the first one set up by the military. But I think that he was, uh, at first, he was uh, distru- uh, distrusted uh, by the peasantry. Mm-hmm. But as they start to see the results, that they no longer have the hook wound, that they feel better, that people that were at, in the brink of uh, death, and all mm-hmm. of a sudden they come back. To their town healthy and say, oh, this doctor uh, is mm-hmm. Dr. Doctor Ashford. So I think at first distrust, distrust that then completely accepted. They ran these clinics for years and they treated hundreds of thousands of patients, the people who needed it the most. Mm-hmm. And <clears throat> Hibaro patients too, not the yeah, Creoles. Yeah, it was mostly Hibaro mm-hmm. that had been uh, the medical establishment in Puerto Rico had see them, they say, this is endemic. There's no cure for this. And the cure was less than a cent to, uh, it cost less than a cent per patient to cure them. And, and Ash, Bailey K. Ashford, he says, this is a disposable labor force. That's what they're not interested right. in curing them. They die when are about 32, 35, and they're replaced by their kids. Mm. And he sees this as a type of modern day slavery in which uh, your labor is stuck and it's replaced. It never ends. And I say, no, this is unacceptable. So eventually, the people opposing him, it's not the peasantry. Mm-hmm. It's the people interested in perpetuating the system. Right. And one thing that I argue that is because of this type of uh, initiative that very early in Puerto Rico, uh, a special relationship between the peasantry and the army starts to develop. And that's not the first thing that Ashford did. He was the medical officer. Yeah. Uh, uh, I think it's called Castillo or Castle Serrayes. And he reckon came to Puerto Rico a few months after yeah. they were there. And something happened that the peasantry had never seen. Instead of closing the gates of the castle, they the military opened it up for the Puerto Rican peasantry. Mm-hmm. And they didn't know what to do. Come inside. There's a hurricane coming. And then it's the military for the good part of a year, mm-hmm. feeding the population. Yeah. So they had never seen this. Spain had never done this. It had mm-hmm. always 
left Puerto Rico in its own time of crisis and imposed even bigger, uh, higher taxes. And it would be individual private citizens who would do all these things that Spain as a state, as a colonial state, always failed to do and to deliver. Mm. So that's why I started to create this special relationship with uh, the bulk of the population, and in particular the peasantry, and I would say the military, I would say the U.S. Army. Because mm-hmm. with the Navy, that's another story. Sure, sure. Well, then Gorgas, though, is on the, on the other side of that, because he doesn't display the same kind of benevolent paternalism that Ashford mm-hmm. does. He, he's also a medical mm-hmm. officer. Mm-hmm. Gorgas was, you know, he's responsible for eliminating yellow fever in Cuba and Guayaquil and Ecuador mm-hmm. and the Panama Canal Zone. But always saying, I'm doing this to make the place fit for white settlement. How did that play out? Well, like I say, um, some of them, um, like we, we are discussing, some of them did it for some reason. Mm-hmm. Uh, Ashford, he thought of his, he called himself a soldier in science. He was more interested in solving uh, problems. He, like you mentioned, he was like uh, the ultimate going native uh, officer. Um, so I think those who work with him and follow his um, uh, his pattern, his behavior, his process, they were accepted. Those uh, others like Gorgas with their idea that we're making this um, safer for us. Mm-hmm. Well, the big question should be here, how much of that does the population get to know? Mm-hmm. Right, because it's not like um, uh, to put it this way. Ashford, he goes and he talks with the population. Yeah, He's yeah. in the mid, right? They sing his work, right? So Gorgas, I don't know how he conducted. I don't know how much he was in the field, um, and his private papers they're not available to mm-hmm. the presentry, right? That's what we know now. So I don't know how it would be, how the two of them would be perceived differently because of their Personal mm-hmm. approaches, approaches of what dri- drives them. Right. I think people at that time they would care more about the results they're seeing. Sure, sure. Right, because if someone cures, let's say that your daughter or your son, uh, daughter or son are dying, right? Mm-hmm. And then come this doctor, and next day they're fine. Are you going to worry about? Hmm. I wonder why they're curing people here. Yeah. No, that's something that well, we you, do now. Yeah. Right. They're gonna be. From my view, I, I'm gonna be wow. I'm gonna be walking home um, again barefoot and stepping in the same feces, getting reinfected, but thinking, wow, this guy saved my children. Mm-hmm. It's a powerful incentive, indeed. Mm-hmm. Let's skip ahead a bit. I don't want to get too bogged down in in the uh, immediate colonial period. We may come back to some questions there. What was the Jones Act about? The Jones Act, the the yeah. one nineteen seventeen. Well, for um, starting in 1901, 1902, the big question uh, uh, with what to do with Puerto Rico became, should they be citizens? Mm-hmm. What's going on in Puerto Rico? So in 1900, you had the Fodaker Act that uh, made Puerto Ricans um, American nationals and Puerto Rican citizens, mm-hmm. which is citizenship that had no value but just inside Puerto Rico. They, they, they weren't any mm-hmm. Puerto Rican passports, meaning yeah. that the only place that which Puerto Rican could travel was um, uh, American possessions, mm-hmm. right? So they created that. This is Congress deciding who are the Puerto Rican 
politically and legally, right? Mm-hmm. So that also created the first civilian government. Then Puerto Rican felt that, hey, this is not enough. We thought we were going to become a territory and then uh, mm-hmm. set up the union eventually or independent. But what is this yeah. crazy thing? I mean, we're right in the middle, right? And no one is actually happy with the decision, but they some people see it as a way uh, especially those pro annexation and becoming a state of the union, say, no, this is one step, a different state that the state they usually take, but we are on our way to be citizens and a state, don't worry. Um, by 1914, there's a heated debate, like, no, this is unacceptable and for the first time. Actually, 1912, 1913, there's a huge debate, and the pro independence faction start growing, there's so much discontent. Uh, in Puerto Rico, so the United States retakes the question, what do we do with Puerto Rico and the Puerto Ricans? And at that point, in 1914, you know, Woodrow Wilson come into the picture, he appoints Governor Yager, mm-hmm. and all of them agree in their uh, interesting worldview that we need Puerto Rico but we should not have a colony, so we need to make them citizens. Mm-hmm. And this is something that Theodore Roosevelt had been advocating since 1900. He's like, right. we need to get the citizenship. They deserve citizenship, right? Mm-hmm. But the military is opposed. Uh, basically, everyone in the United States is opposed mm-hmm. to citizenship. And in 1914, um, Wilson started pushing way before World War I started. Mm-hmm. Actually, he campaigned on that. 1912, 1913, he's already talking right. about that. Yager is talking about Puerto Rican uh, citizenship for the Puerto Rico, 1912, 1913. That's one of the reasons that his friend Wilson appointed him governor of Puerto Rico. For coming to Puerto Rico, he writes a big essay, a big essay mm-hmm. that this is how we culminate our, our democratic experiment in Puerto Rico. And, well, it turned out that the military wasn't ready. Uh, they say, well, individually, some Puerto Ricans have demonstrated they're modern enough and manly enough, mm-hmm. but collectively... No, so we support um, uh, in the uh, in independent individual based citizenship, seeing everyone case by case, uh, or those who are well educated, those who have property may qualify. Those for who citizenship. are white may qualify mm-hmm. for citizenship and educated and rich. Yes. <laughs> so, um, so it doesn't go anywhere, but Wilson keeps pushing mm-hmm. because. Uh, and then World War I starts, and you know that he tried his diplomacy right. to end the war diplomatically, but uh, to end, one of his main goals is to end the colonial empire, self-determination and whatnot, and everyone can look at him, and actually people are looking at him from Latin America and from Europe. Seriously, you want to end colonial empires? Have you looked at yourself? What about Cuba, Philippines, and, yeah. and Puerto Rico? So he goes to Congress in 1915, I think December 1915, and he calls Congress because they haven't given Puerto Rican citizenship. And he said the war is watching. They want to know that we're serious about ending colonies. Mm-hmm. Because in his mind, giving citizenship to the Puerto Rican and, and the colonial France. and the Puerto Rican and the United States, the American colonial empire. Puerto Rico would no longer be a colony. And he said, This is important for my diplomacy. Mm-hmm. I can end the war with this. And that is why the process to give Puerto Rican citizenship. It's accelerated uh, before, way before mm-hmm. the United States is even involved in the war. It's right. not to send them because they're not wanted in the military at all. Right, right. Well, how, how do the islands need to respond 
to the exposure to the Jim Crow morality they observed during the war. Well, this is interesting because uh, when it was announced that uh, that the Puerto Rican uh, division, uh, their their contribution to the National Army mm-hmm. was going to be segregated, there was so much outcry. Mm-hmm. But the outcry was hypocritical because Puerto Rico had its own uh, de facto segregation already, mm-hmm. and it had been the Puerto Rican militias were the white Puerto Ricans who served there, mm-hmm. and Afro-Puerto Ricans served in different units. It had always been segregated. Right. So it was a way of saying, um, we're going to be segregated. You know that you are. You and I are brother. Is that guy above us who is separating us? Right. But it was. It was uh, from my point of view. It was quite hypocritical. Mm-hmm. But then Afro-Puerto Rican leaders, political leaders, they took that and they linked the fight. Uh, they linked the struggle or what they thought it would be the struggle of the Puerto Rican color regiments. They say they're doing just like the Senegalese um, mm-hmm. uh, colonial troops and the African-American who are fighting. It's a war of liberation of the black race. And right. that's how they start presenting in Puerto Rico, Afro-Puerto Rican leaders. Mm. Was there a, a sense, I mean, the, the Puerto Rican regiments don't serve in combat war. Um, was there a sense that they were not martial enough for the army, or was there another factor at play here? Well, the military refused uh, refused to accept uh, Puerto Rican uh, or to raise more Puerto Rican units. So Wither Wilson had to intervene right. after receiving letter after letter from Puerto Rican leaders. And I'm not talking just political leaders, but I'm talking about community leaders. Right. Um, uh, well-to-do Puerto Rican writing. This is an insult. The Puerto Rican legislature say we want to contribute, right? So at this point, there's the Puerto Rican regiment. The Puerto Rican mm-hmm. regiment is sent to Panama. Yeah. And they the newspapers in particular say, wow, we were found fit enough to defend this important uh, installation that allows for the projection of American power. Yeah. Wow, they trust us. No, they're sending them there because... They're out of was, harm's way. They're, they're out of harm's way. And the military right, this way we free, we free white troops mm-hmm. to do the real fighting. Mm-hmm. And as you probably know, the division that is raised in Puerto Rico... It encounters all kinds of obstacles from the American military oh, because sure. the War Department say, I don't want to train them. Mm-hmm. I don't want to equip them. And, and when they're forced to, they say, okay, we're going to train them and we're going to give them the same uniforms and the same weapons, but they will never leave the island. They will right. never see combat. And that they were almost ready to be deployed when the armistice came mm-hmm. happened despite the War Department, and it happened because Puerto Rican leaders, they said to, oh, you don't find land? Here, I'm going to donate my land so you can set up your training mm-hmm. camp. Oh, you're not finding ways of mobilizing people? Private individual mm-hmm. took on the task of getting the Puerto Rican to register, to get them fit to pass the exam, mm-hmm. and, and the rejection, rejection rate is over 75%. Jeez. They just didn't want them. Right. And they, it's kind of just like the African-Americans are doing, they're fighting for their right to fight. Mm-hmm. And in many ways, and when you look at the literature, is to prove our manhood and fitness for self-determination. Moving forward to future political mm-hmm. considerations, obviously. Mm-hmm. Yeah, very much so. What about mainland Puerto Ricans? How did they fit in? Because I know that there's Puerto Ricans who serve, for example, 
in the 77th Division, the New York City Division. Mm -hmm. What kind of response are they getting from within the Army or the American community? Well, um, it's interesting that um, the Puerto Rican communities and Latino communities, they started to to emerge, and they're really small, right? Mm -hmm. So what you get from the little bit that I've been able to recover from from at the time called the Hispanic press mm -hmm. uh, is that they would follow these soldiers uh, just like say the Irish community would follow mm -hmm. uh, the Irish American community would follow their soldiers uh, detached here and there and it was mm -hmm. today it was uh, a sense of claiming that we belong here right, right? also found um, letters and a news part in which um, the Puerto Rican in New York, um, the Puerto Rican in New York, chosen by the draft, his, num his number is called. He said, but I'm not a citizen. Yeah. I'm like, well, yes, you are, but you don't need to be a citizen to serve your country. <laughs> and that's so, You and everybody else in this division. Yeah, yeah. right? And um, um, it is interesting that Puerto Ricans who were here, right, they would, um, if they were found to be white, and many of them were, mm -hmm. they would be sent to uh, white units, and they ended up fighting. Right. But most of them were sent to uh, the 77, and many of them ended up fighting with the 369, mm -hmm. not just because they fit the profile, but because Gene Reese Europe went to Puerto Rico to recruit Puerto Rican musicians for his band, and, right, and, right. and that led to all kind of wonderful things for Puerto Rico, because this musician, Rafael Hernandez, who is now at the... At the uh, at the maximum composer uh, in Puerto Rican history, he adds to what he knows about music that is is already it's already a person who plays many instruments by ear. He can write whatnot. When mm -hmm. he under Reese Europe and being in France, he just grows exponentially. And after that, he just right. become. Um, I, I mean, in Puerto Rico, everyone knows Rafael Hernandez and his, his experience during the war that turned him into mm -hmm. the musician that he became for Puerto Rico. It's remarkable. I've read that President Warren G. Harding supported the idea of Puerto Rican statehood. Is this serious? Is this real? Or was this fantasy? How seriously should we take that? You mean uh, citizenship or statehood? Statehood. A statehood. There've been. Um, I'm not quite sure right now about Harding, but I think that he's in in the list of uh, um, presidents that actually support a statehood. And um, it is interesting that to this day, the statehood movement in Puerto Rico is um, associate. Uh, they try to associate with the, or identify with the Republican Party because the Republican Party had a long trajectory. Of supporting statehood right. for Puerto Rico, so that wasn't uh, it wasn't uncommon. Mm -hmm. It wasn't uncommon. There's a long list of uh, Republicans and some Democrats who have expressed uh, uh, themselves in favor of statehood for Puerto Rico. Mm -hmm. Okay, okay. Well, the 1930s were a tough time for the island. You know, so they were for the entire United States, and you described this was the time when Puerto Rico became America's Ireland. It's a lot packed into that description. Can you break it down? What do you, what do you mean? Well, um, the title and the description for that chapter came from what uh, some politicians or political leaders 
in the era we're writing the newspapers, and especially Luis Munoz Marin, mm -hmm. he, uh, who was going to eventually become the first elected governor of the island and mm -hmm. creator of the Commonwealth formula the Estado Puerto Rico has now, he's pro-independence at, at the time. He's a nationalist who is starting to flirt with uh, and understand flirt with and understand socialism. Um, that is going to be really important a decade later. Mm -hmm. Later, but when he's writing. For the press, he's talking about the violence that is uh, uh, the pressure, in, that it, the political pressure that is accumulated in Puerto Rico because we cannot continue under these socioeconomic and political uh, conditions, right? Mm -hmm. So he just write it like that. Right. You're going to have an airline in the Caribbean, right? An American Ireland, right? And it Actually, then come in the uh, the, the extreme nationalists yeah. in which they have uh, their leader had associated with the Sinn Féin and whatnot. They bring the tactics of the IRA to Puerto Rico: oh bombs, oh. assassinations, uh, assassinated uh, um, uh, policemen, uh, postal worker because they represent the state. The, the yeah. state. And, and imagine this: this always makes me think about the civil war. Because of the postal service. Are we going to be able to deliver the mail? No. no. You represent the federal government, so I'm going to shoot you. <laughs> so, and that is kind of like an interesting parallel. And they bring bombs, assassinations, um, even when it's discussed, uh, it's being discussed in the Puerto Rican legislature yeah. to have an official Puerto Rican flag, the one that we have now. Yeah. The nationalists rush the legislature to to stop that. No, that's our flag. You cannot use it. You represent, you're part of the colonial bureaucracy. Mm. So, and it became, it started with political tension and eventually becomes a shooting war between um, uh, the Puerto Rican insular police <coughs> mm -hmm. led by uh, American officers and um, the nationalists who create their uh, military wings. Mm -hmm. It's interesting that it doesn't draw in a greater... American military response. Perhaps that's why you know I was surprised by the the implications of that term when when you when you presented it to us. I mean, it would have been perfectly good reason for the Marines to go to Puerto Rico or for the Army to go to Puerto Rico. I mean, they're already in Panama, Haiti, Nicaragua, and Guatemala, and other places. How do we avoid militarizing that conflict? The Conflict didn't get to be militarized because the police was militarized enough. Mm -hmm. As soon as the nationalists uh, uh, raised the challenge, um, the, uh, the FBI came to the island to train um, um, the police force in the mm -hmm. use of submachine and machine gun, smoke, um, all these things that have been trained mm -hmm. in World War One. The insular police in Puerto Rico is training on them, right? Mm -hmm. So they become, uh, it is a time which the insular police in Puerto Rico is so militarized that they look like, like the police or the militaries in Central America. Well, I was going to say, how do they avoid mm -hmm. then being, you know, accumulating that same hatred that you mm -hmm. see for the Samosan military or Samosan police? Because to begin with, you have the 65th Infantry now, right? Mm -hmm. that, uh, that most of the population look at it with admiration. Mm -hmm. It's Puerto Ricans. In U.S. Army uniform, they are in every parade. Mm -hmm. They conduct all kinds of services. They're like um, in every um, uh, communal activity, like festival and whatnot. They're there. Mm -hmm. They play. Um, they're really involved. There's also the Puerto Rican National Guard that is starting right. to get uh, not just 
the old elites, which are found in the 65th, but the new emerging elites, and it's becoming like, um, it's becoming a, a, a real liberal and progressive body, right? You mm -hmm. have what it would be the National Guard, right. and it's endemic, um, and it's organic to the island. So it's the 65th, but it's more identified with the regular with, army, yeah. With the regular army and with the United States, the National Guard is more local, but at the same time, the two of them are accepted. They don't have to be involved in, in this because the police has it well at hand. And mm -hmm. what happened is that the nationalists, they overplayed their hand over and over and over again. Mm -hmm. And I mean by this, whenever the police overplay their hand, um, the nationalists would get a lot of support. Right. All the writers and, and their meetings, more people would come. How could you do this? Uh, you, uh, extrajudicial killings? Are you mm -hmm. killing me? Are you kidding me? The police are arresting people and they said that they tried to escape while in custody and they mm -hmm. ch were shot inside of a, a cell. Mm -hmm. So whenever this happens and the nationalists get a lot of support, they think, oh, it's my time to strike now. Now that they have the support, there's going to be a, a, a general rebellion. But right. no, they respond in kind or sometimes they respond with even more violent, more violently and the people, the, the support disappears. Right. And then comes in Munoz Marin that's seen this back and forth and after um, the assassination of the American chief of police, mm -hmm. uh, the uh, retaliation uh, later um, at the city of Ponce, the massacre of mm -hmm. Ponce and then the retaliation by the nationalists mm -hmm. uh, against trying to assassinate the, gover the governor, the American governor, that mm -hmm. he was really hated yeah. and had to be removed. Yeah, you and mentioned that there is a switch. <coughs> FDR personally intervenes to change the governor. Yeah. And so it shows that there is a presidential hand in all of oh, this. Oh, no, definitely. Yeah. And But there is a thing that when they tried to assassinate the governor, that everyone hated the governor. They miss. The national miss badly, and everyone who died that day were, including a Puerto Rican coroner uh, from the National Guard were people who were beloved by most of the Puerto Ricans. Here comes Munoz Marin and say, this is pointless. Yeah. Only Puerto Ricans are dying. We need to stop this. I regret the loss of life of Puerto Rico on both sides. And right. that's when people, when Luis Munoz Marin was at the end of his career, it looked like he was the end of his career. Yeah. He understood, yeah, when the police strikes, the population support the nationalists. When the nationalists strike, the population withdraw, withdraw their support and they say, no, Puerto Ricans don't want Puerto Ricans killing Puerto Ricans. Mm -hmm. And he comes with this series of statement, his political career revives, and he's the one who's going to end up leading Puerto Rico. You know, you're, we're, we're still on the subject of talking about the independence effort and the responses in Puerto Rico. What's going on in Washington? You know, do we see any kind of contradictory or complementary efforts to deal with the islands? Anyways? Well, in Washington? All of this has happened within the context of the Great Depression, which affected Puerto Rico before the Absolutely. U.S. mainland. Absolutely. Right? And as soon as FDR uh, uh, becomes president, he gets really worried that, and the military is worried, things are so bad in Puerto Rico right now. Economically, hunger is widespread. It's worse than we've ever seen. That they yeah. decide, we need to fix this because there is a war coming. Right. And the what happened in 1898, in which the population sided with the invaders, if the Germans or any other European or the Japanese in, mm. invade, and there's yeah. this thought about the Japanese yeah. they're going to side with them because sure. things are bad. So he decides to stabilize things in Puerto Rico, and that's why he ends up sending 
uh, Rex Paul Tugwell to Puerto Rico, one of the ideologues right. of the New Deal, to bring the New Deal in force and, and more to Puerto Rico. He creates a Puerto Rican <clears throat> Civilian Conservation Corps, more infrastructure mm -hmm. on the island. What's going on with the 65th Infantry, though? Well, the 65th, as soon as um, it's being brought up to uh, full strength, uh, at the same time that um, uh, the New Deal comes to Puerto Rico, the military is also investing millions and millions of dollars, creating all, all, all types of air, army, and naval bases, eventually mm -hmm. getting ready in case there, there is a war, what are we going to do, where do we face it? Puerto Rico become the center of hemispheric uh, defense, and um, uh, FDR starts uh, talking about uh, Puerto Rico being uh, the tip of our spearhead, and we're, we're going to meet any European or Eastern-born mm -hmm. aggression anywhere in, right. in the Americas. And the 65th is brought up to strength, as usual, as soon as they announce that they're recruiting, all the veterans come back and they have to line oh, up, wow. and, and, and the last... 1,000, 2,000, so like, sorry, we have everyone we want. And they immediately send them, again, mm -hmm. uh, uh, as usual, Panama, but then the southern U.S. And uh, everywhere they go, it's celebrated in mm -hmm. Puerto Rico. It's like they cannot keep a secret. Everyone knows what the 65th is. And yeah. they receive all kind of training throughout the, throughout the war. Am uh, amphibious training, infiltration, jungle, chemical training. All kinds of training because the military is like, we have to move them, but we don't yeah. have to deploy them in a theater of war. Right. They eventually are going to be in a few firefights, but it's not that they're participating in a battle. It's, um, is, that, um, is that the, the 65th itself or were those members of the National Guard? The 65th. Really? It is the 65th. Okay. So when the war ended... They sustained very few casualties, right. very few, uh, especially combat casualties. You know, people die in training, people yeah. die, they, they get sick, but the casualties are minimal. They have received all this training and they have been living together and they have been training since 1939 at least. Wow. And it's when they returned to Puerto Rico in 1945, they're so cohesive, so well trained and the war they fought, it wasn't such a horrible war because they took part in a few firefights. They were in campaigns, mm -hmm. but they were not in the front because they were not trusted or wanted. So their experience of the war was, I traveled, I trained, came back. Wow, it was an awesome war. Wow. Well, it's just such a disparity in comparison with of the treatment given other minority segregated units. I'm not just thinking about African-American units, but Japanese-Americans mm -hmm. as well. There has to be some kind of, of really deep-seated, deep-rooted racial animus within the military establishment towards Puerto Rico. I just don't... I can't get it. I, I can't wrap my head around it. Well, that's part of it. And one of the, the interesting thing is that the 65th was the white Puerto Ricans regiment. Yeah. Everyone in the 65th of Korea was white. They had to be white. Mm -hmm. So to the point that when the United States is looking... Um, yeah, the United States is looking for truth to uh, to garrison mm -hmm. uh, the French, Dutch, and British Caribbean so they can free up uh, those troops and they can fight, right? Uh, the, free, the French and the Dutch, they say, mm -hmm. okay, you can bring some troops so we can send our troops to defend or mm -hmm. whatever we have left to defend. 
And the Americans say, okay, yeah, well, I'm going to send you some color regiments. And <laughs> the government probably say, no, yeah. we don't want, you don't understand that it's going to alter uh, uh, the racial harmony that we have created yeah. here. And the United States say, okay, we're going to send you Puerto Ricans. And, <laughs> and the, the correspondence between yeah. uh, the, uh, the different diplomats is incredible. Say, no, we don't want Puerto Rican either. You don't understand. Puerto Ricans are black. And the Department of War says, and the Department of State, no, we're sending you white Puerto Ricans who are mm -hmm. bilingual and speak English. They, mm -hmm. they will know, your people will know the difference. They're mm -hmm. going to think they're white troops. Wow. So that's why uh, they don't send the 65th, right? But they, uh, the people, the Puerto Ricans from the National Guard that get to be deployed mm -hmm. uh, in the Caribbean, about maybe half of, maybe close to half or uh, uh or 40% of the American troops deployed in the Caribbean are white or Puerto white Rican. passing Puerto Ricans to assuage, uh, <laughs> to assuage the worries of the Dutch, the French, and the British of bringing armed color men into their, into their colonies. Yeah. yeah. What about the, the Puerto Rican civilian population? How are, they, how are they dealing with the war? How are they supporting the Second World War? Uh, this is really interesting, right? Um, the war is doing so much for Puerto Rico, the war project. Um, uh, when the United States starts to create or to turn Puerto Rico into an unsinkable battleship, which is mm -hmm. what how they conceive it, an unsinkable battleship, um, they couldn't spare uh, continental manpower. Mm -hmm. So they started retraining Puerto Rican from the agrarian sector and uh, in modern building industry uh, techniques, right? And um, so for the Puerto Rican, they see the New Deal coming to the island, the, co the economy getting better, mm -hmm. uh, roads being built like telephone line, telegraph, it's, it's, it's incredible. They call it uh, a century of development in 10 years, mm -hmm. right? To make... Puerto Rico, that unsinkable battleship that has to be linked to the point that one of our main highways to this day is called the military road mm -hmm. or the military to this day. That's how I grew up calling it the military, right? Mm -hmm. And not only that, but people who used to work in some of the lowest uh, sector of the agriculture, mm -hmm. agricultural sector are now being trained to become industrial workers. Mm. And, they're be, and they're getting paid very well by the military. And these are about yeah. 40,000 to 60,000 Puerto Ricans from peasant mm. to industrial workers. That's a big demographic shift. It's, yeah. Uh, yeah. No, it is, it, is, it is an incredible demographic, right? And it's not only touching them directly, but it's like the whole economy. This period that uh, historian Bolivar Fresneda has studied in terms of counting the beans, he say, wow, this is um, an era in Puerto Rico, a period in which we have a full military economy. And mm -hmm. that is a lot to say because Puerto Rico had always been a military colony hmm. to the point that when the Americans invaded, between 25%, 30% of the budget, the colonial administration budget, was for the military. Mm. When have you heard about 25-30% of your budget for uh, uh, assigned to military matters, right? Mm -hmm. So in an island that had always been a military bastion first and everything else came second, that historians say, wow, at this period we have a full military economy. We don't have military industries, right. but making Puerto Rico that 
point out the state in hemispheric defense and then thinking, okay, the, uh, the, oh, the English are going to fall. Where do we house them? Okay, Puerto Rico. That's where right. the British government in the exile and, and, and the British forces in the exile are going to be housed so we can keep, continue the fight from here, right? right? So that changed Puerto Rico. Uh, that changed Puerto Rico drastically. And if on top of that you add that the soldiers are staying in Puerto Rico, mm-hmm. are basically not going anywhere, or yeah. deploy for a few months in nearby Caribbean island that they can continue. So there's no basically no Puerto Rican casualties. Yeah. And the soldiers are getting, even Puerto Rican soldiers who train in Puerto Rico and never left the island, they get overseas pay. Oh my goodness. Wow. And <laughs> because they're overseas. Yeah. So, and they're, they, they don't have no use for that money. They are stationed in bases. So they send all their money to their dependents. Hmm. So the, from the point of uh, economic point of view and what it does for Puerto Rico, um, yeah, there was a lot of support for the boys. Um, mm-hmm. uh, they call it supporting the boys, uh, a group of women, not just the elite women mm-hmm. doing their civic duties, but women from the working class, uh, the, these communities doing what they can to support our boys. Hmm. So, so mirroring what's happening in the United States in many ways. Yeah. yeah. Well, you cast, we move ahead, and you cast the Korean War. We're nearing the end of, of, of your books. You cast the Korean War as the defining moment in Puerto Rico's transformation from dependency into Commonwealth status. Is that due to the, the first combat deployment of the 65th, or are there other factors that play into that? The deployment of the 65th plays a big factor here, uh, and it's symbolically. Yeah. Uh, the newspapers in Puerto Rico, what I call the patriarchs in Puerto Rico, and the opinion makers, yeah. uh, they all uh, they all write um, how proud we should be that we've been found uh, fit enough mm-hmm. to uh, stop communist aggression and make the world safe for our democracies again. That this is it. Look right. at this. We are on the front lines. Uh, fighting under the flag of the United Nations mm-hmm. in the in the middle of a decolonization uh, project, mm-hmm. um, right? You know that um, we know um, the former empires, uh, many other colonies, they're on their way to uh, independence or to fight for independence or to attain independence uh, politically, mm-hmm. right? And in Puerto Rico, they take these narratives too. They say, mm-hmm. wow, yeah, we're fighting under the flag of the United States, but more so under the flag of the United Nations, mm. we're finding a third way, a Pacific way, a way of having our own democratic revolution. And these boys, these men, mm-hmm. they're going to prove it. That's why Puerto Rico became such a total war for Puerto, for Puerto Rico. And as you look at the press in Puerto Rico, the first 10, 12, 14 pages, Every single day of the war, they're dedicated to the the Puerto Rican soldier mm-hmm. in Korea. Oh, sure, sure. But then, how do you reconcile that with you know actions like the assassination attempt at Blair House that's happening? In, you know, they're, they're, they're tar- Puerto Rican separatists are targeting Harry Truman, and then building this reputation of. For the island again, going back to this America's island, Ireland kind of yeah. view. Well, that's when um, this is really interesting, right? World War II ends, and Puerto mm-hmm. Rico, ha- its economy has been linked, fused mm-hmm. 
to the military and mm -hmm. to federal transfers in a way that it had never been. Mm -hmm. And Puerto Rico uh, has undergone through, uh, has undergone this incredible transformation. And leaders like Muñoz Marin that had been thinking about independence, they start to realize, well, I depend on this type of economy, mm -hmm. but more so, he had plans to transform even more mm -hmm. society uh, in Puerto Rico. And in 1944, when he was president of the Senate, he, when he first heard about the GI Bill, mm -hmm. he thought, this is it. These are the people who are going to transform. He had studied the GI Bill. He knew that many of the Puerto Rican Serbians would not qualify because they didn't have high school. Mm -hmm. But then he got, um, uh, this I found in his, what it would be our presidential library, the Fundacion Muñoz Marin. Mm -hmm. we, we, I've, uh, I found all kinds of laws and uh, passed in California, Maine, by uh, their uh, state legislatures. So their own soldiers, when they returned and didn't have high school, to put them on they the path towards high school so they yeah. could go. So Luis Muñoz Marín, from the legislature in Puerto Rico, he studied this and he started to pass the same laws. Mm. So when the Puerto Rican soldiers started to return or were demobilized, they would be basically remobilized by the Puerto Rican colonial state. Mm -hmm. So they would finish high school, go to vocational school, and eventually to the University of Puerto Rico. And... To put it this way, the GI Bill was used by perhaps 48% of the World War II uh, GIs, right? Right, right. In Puerto Rico, it was close to 97%. And wow. it was because the state, and those Puerto Ricans who didn't use it because they moved here and they didn't have a state behind them, interested, invested in them becoming the professionals and know-how and, and providing the know-how and becoming the people who will lead Puerto Rico into a new modern era. Mm -hmm. In Puerto Rico, Muñoz Marín understood that in 1944 and he started working like Puerto Rican unit would come uh, piecemeal and right. they would be uh, uh, the functionaries of the state waiting for them to fill out all the paperwork. No benefit will go on claim. No soldier was going back into the fields. No, you're going to finish high school and this uh, because of the need to train the, the soldier and the funding that the Department of Education is providing as well, they decided to create um, not only the University of Puerto Rico expanded, but mm -hmm. the, voca uh, the, the vocational uh, schools that I grew up next to, I didn't know his story, is based on that. Mm -hmm. They had to come and be trained on a task if they don't want to go uh, um, to, to the university, right? Um, and the public education system balloons too to house the soldier. So mm. it is this participation how integral the Puerto Rican World War II veteran is for transforming Puerto Rico that Muñoz Marin said, independence will have two ways. Let's right. find something in between. And when he started conceiving this idea, mm -hmm. um, he final, the, the final idea is Public Law 600, in which Puerto Rico is going to find a different path. Autonomy, but within, but within the United States. No one called it at the moment a reformed colonial state, but that's what it was. A colonial state with a lot of autonomy for internal matters. Mm -hmm. So to make the long story uh, short, the nationalists, when they resort to insurrection mm -hmm. and they attempt to uh, assassinate Truman, is to stop this process. Yeah. But what happens? There's an insurrection in Puerto Rico in 1950. They actually waited. Uh, the nationalists, uh, the way they look at this matter, we are never going to win insurrection if the 65th is here. Mm 
Uh -huh. The 60th is sent to Korea. Now, Insurrection uh, happens. The National Guard and the police in Puerto Rico were more than enough to suppress it with very limited casualties. And, and, in, and in effect, it helped create the Commonwealth because they were trying to stop it from becoming a reality. Mm -hmm. But the guy who's going to be in charge of the Commonwealth is the one who suppresses it, right? So it kind of, if American interests mm -hmm. have their doubt that Puerto Rico will not the same to chaos, the way they handle this proved to American decision-maker, no, they, they yeah. got it, so I support yeah. this. And actually, it made it impossible for any Puerto Rican to oppose Public mm -hmm. Law 600, hmm. the nationalist insurrection. So in many ways, they helped, they helped to create it by trying to stop it. Mm. Right. This is the they hope they didn't think that they would win, right. but they thought that if they withdrew to the mountains, right, they could uh, hold on long enough for the world to take a look at them and intervene. But what happened is that they didn't last, didn't last that long. Mm -hmm. That when they tried to murder Munoz Marin, who had been elected uh, governor, um, the picture the worst is. Is dead people in front of uh, the Fortaleza House in Puerto Rico mm -hmm. and the United Nations flag riddled with bullets shot by the nationalists. Mm. So they lost the public opinion. They le legitimized Munoz Marin. They showed him as viable as Puerto Rico, the new reform colonial state being a, a, a viable thing. And that was their last shot. Mm. That was their last shot. It was they lost on every front. Mm. So now the thing is, how do we sell the war? And Munoz Marin starts saying, well, look at our men. They were yeah. peasants. They were turned to soldiers. They're fighting for Puerto Rico because that is their, it is their duty as Puerto Ricans mm -hmm. to protect the United States mm -hmm. and the war. We're fighting for the war. And you know what happened? The uh, stations, in, uh, the recruiting stations in Puerto Rico always had people lining up waiting because mm -hmm. they wanted to fight, not just to fight, they wanted to be in that regiment that was fighting right. for Puerto Rico and the war. And that cemented the deal. And mm -hmm. they became they became the embodiment of the Commonwealth formula. Mm. Not here, not there, not X, nor Y. We are the two of them. Mm -hmm. We can house these two identities. Amazing. That was it. Where does Puerto Rico go from here? I mean, I, that's a loaded question, but what I'm wondering is, how should Americans and Puerto Ricans today, 60, 70 years later, reconcile the island's relationship with civic military institutions and the desire for a more amenable status? Well, that is an interesting question. Uh, when Puerto Rico finds itself in a... Uh, an interesting position in which the annexionist movement or pro-state of the union movement keeps growing mm -hmm. despite uh, the leadership of the PNP party that have never been able to handle the question of cultural identity and, and national identity. To them, that sounds anti-American. Mm -hmm. So that's why I say despite the leadership of the PNP that once uh, statehood, the statehood movement continues to grow. Mm -hmm. Right, but on the other hand, there's about fifty percent of Puerto Ricans who would be okay. Let's stay the way we are, mm -hmm. but with a few newer arrangements, kind of like reforming the colony. Certainly, before more. this time last year, they would be saying that. 
Yeah, you mean before um before Maria. Um and I think that because of Ma of Maria, the movement towards uh becoming a state of the union is going to become even stronger. Mm -hmm. Um I know that um this is a delicate question, but I know that if we only look at the continental press, it looks like the federal government failed at every level. Mm -hmm. But that opinion is not, it's shared by most of Puerto Rican academia in Puerto Rico, mm -hmm. by the opposition uh, parties or the parties that, uh, well, the statehooders are, are mm -hmm. in power now. So the opposition is anti-statehood. So right. that's their line too. But a lot of Oregon's in Puerto Rico, they don't share uh, mm. that opinion, even with all the data. And in times of crisis, and, his, and Puerto Rican history shows this, in times of crisis like this, mm -hmm. the annexionist movement grows. Right. It doesn't shrink. Mm. So I, I think, I, and I know it's counterintuitive because of uh, having a president doing, throwing uh, paper towels and insisting there's only 69 or 67 uh, dead sure. or Puerto Rican are messing this up. Well, um, I, I see a lot of that as reflective of actually the general ignorance that many Americans have towards Puerto Rico. I'm not going to yeah. pin it on him specifically. No, definitely. Yeah. But, no, but I mean, since he represents, uh, he's the head of the federal government, one would American, expect yeah. he's doing, the president actually say this, did that? You would expect uh, more Puerto Rican to be so deeply offended mm -hmm. that they would want nothing to do with the United States. Right. But on the other hand, it is Trump is just a man, he's just another president. The mm -hmm. federal institution, and this is why I go back to the army, the federal institution in Puerto Rico are well, are, are well respected, mm -hmm. and including, I mean, the Postal workers, all the federal institutions that you have in the United States. Everybody you, except you, the Navy. You so. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> and now even the Navy is starting to get a lot of Puerto Ricans. <laughs> but even um, I trained, I went to exercises in Vieques when Vieques was still um, part of uh, the U.S. naval installations. Mm -hmm. And as part of our training, they would... Uh, come and tell us, well, you have uh, be mindful because the locals are anti-military. And I told them, well, that's okay. I've never been there. Mm -hmm. That's going to be weird. But we were going everywhere yeah. uh, throughout, throughout the island, right? But we had the patches that identify us uh, as Army Reserve in Puerto Rico, and people would flock to us yeah, because the Navy is not the Army. And the Army Reserve, a company full of Puerto Ricans, yeah. wasn't, to then it wasn't even the U.S. Army, it was the Puerto Rican Army. Right. So right. people could not even give us, like, free drinks and food. Uh, so, But the Navy, that was another thing, right? <laughs> Harry, thanks for, for joining with me today. I, I mean, God, it's always great to chat with you. Uh, as you know, we have a few closing questions we'd like to ask at the end of our interviews. First... What are you reading or watching that you would like to share with our listeners? Oh, wow. Well, I don't know if I should do that. I'm watching so much Netflix these days. Oh, wow. <laughs> I mean, Let's keep um, it professional. Yeah. <laughs> no. Um, well, lately I've been watching a lot of uh, films about um, colonial um, soldiers. Mm -hmm. I think this one's called Lady Jen about. Indigene, the, uh, the Place yeah. of Glory, yeah. 
Exactly. I like the first part, which is really into the story. They become, they try to recreate a Saving Private Ryan kind of thing. Yeah. Uh, I think it's really interesting. I've also been watching uh, films uh, that their names I can't remember about the Korean War producing Korea. Mm-hmm. And again, they follow this, exactly the same pattern I described before. Yeah. That they have so much technology to recreate great battles that they yeah. start with a great story and then they give they give you gratuitous uh Violence, battle scenes yeah. that they don't really fit into the narrative. But the stories are good and, and in many ways I can see uh, how they um relate mm-hmm. to the stories I well the his the not the story, the history I've been <laughs> I've been trying to weave together here. Sure. Well, what about reading? Are you reading anything of note that you'd like to share? Or Oh, wow. You got me kind of like in... Um, well, recently, and this is interesting because, um, you know, I write about Puerto Rico and I teach about Puerto Rico and it's like Puerto Rico is never enough. If you're a Cubanist, you can yeah. write about the most obscure thing in Cuba and everyone yeah. wants to publish it. Yeah. Right? But if you write about Puerto Rico, you have to be competitive. So I've been reading uh, this one in particular to the Line of Fire, Mexican Texans, Mexican Texans and World War One. And Jose Ramirez, I know it, this book. Yeah. And it is an excellent book. And when yeah. I read it, I thought, wow, that's that's my history of the sixty-fifth infantry. Yeah. Yeah, the, the the book's about the Tejanos in yeah. the First World War, and that's such an interesting perspective. Tejanos, Californios, which were, um, I mean, sometimes we think about the Latino experience and we forget that Latinos come in all flavors. Yeah. And so also That's... because I do the empire, uh, making morals is something that I revisit oh. because the way um, the American uh, officer became um, aficionado or amateur anthropologist trying to understand trying to understand um, their new subjects and or the people they were fighting against. Mm-hmm. Um, I think um, this book is amazing. Um, yeah, the book is Michael C. Hawkins' Making Moros, The Imperial Historicism and American Military Rule in the Philippines' Muslim South. I, that's a great book. I, I have to get a copy of that myself. No, it is, it is an amazing book, and I... Uh, it, it gives a lot of uh, perspective, uh, especially in my introduction, uh, on how to understand how this special relationship between the peasantry mm-hmm. and and the army develops. Because eventually in this book, what he claimed is that the Moros and the U.S. Army develop such a close relationship of respect because they have been killing each other. Sure. And the Americans came to see the Moros as wow, these people can fight. Yeah. Not like the northern Filipinos who can hold a rifle right. That's martial, that's martial racist doctrine yeah, right. straight out of the Indian, the British in India and dropped into the Philippines. Exactly. Wow. Harry, second question. What future projects should we be on the watch for from you? Well, remember I told you that uh, this started, started in the 65th and mm-hmm. then I went and got this whole long durée to study... Mm-hmm. formations, uh, social formation in, and cultural formation in Puerto Rican history mm-hmm. to a military lens. Well, I'm revisiting, and I have I have been revisiting the work that I did at Temple, and now I'm going to write uh, 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 
have a contract to finish a book on the experience of the Puerto Ricans in Korea, only Korea. Mm -hmm. And the way I have um, conceived uh, the new work is that it takes it takes on where this book ends, mm -hmm. but it's an in-depth analysis of what happened in that war. So you're going to... Uh, the book is going to include uh, the demographics of the soldier, mm -hmm. uh, social and cultural study of right. who they are and what they're doing, the politics, the battles, uh, the trial they go through, in, inclu including the mass court martial, and eventually the last chapter that I call the return is the repatriation of Puerto Rican uh, prisoners of war. Um, uh, the wounded and how they came to symbolize the sacrifice that Puerto Rico, uh, the Puerto Ricans made, and not just for Puerto Rico, but for the communities in the eastern seaboard, the Puerto Rican community in, in the eastern seaboard, which are going from colonias to full communities. And mm -hmm. in these uh, eastern seaboard cities, there's this ugly question, mm -hmm. which is called the Puerto Rican question. What right. do we do with them? And then this community, uh, the the returning prisoners of war and the soldiers who get enough point to come back and the wounded, they became a way for this community to engage in politics of respectability mm. and to claim and to make a claim of belonging in those cities. At the same time that they're being used in Puerto Rico mm -hmm. as we earn this new status. And right. that's what the book is, but it includes the battles, the deployment, uh, letters, mm -hmm. and the cultural and, and the cultural, political, and social aspect of the war. Great, great. Well, I'm looking forward to seeing that, Harry. I really am. And many thanks again for joining us, Harry. Really, really appreciate having you join us. Thanks so much for the invitation. Um, I'm looking forward to keep chatting with you about this topic. It's always a, a pleasure to have. Uh, long conversations with you. That's great. And for all of our lesson, and to all of our listeners, this is Bob Wintermute with New Books in Military History, thanking you for listening.